Welcome to The Dish, the culinary travel podcast focusing on the stories behind world-famous foods. We are your hosts, Tom and Megzi from foodfuntravel.com. Join us for tasty histories, destination food guides, and more. In this episode, we are talking about Vietnam's most famous sandwich, banh mi. Yes, we will talk about how much of an influence the French actually had on this famous dish. Plus a roundup of Vietnamese history, bringing us into the modern context of why banh mi existed in the first place. Okay. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of The Dish. Yes, this time we are heading to Southeast Asia. It's been a while since we've been in this region. Yes, sounds good. Yes, so we uh, decided this week that we were going to do an episode on one of the world's most famous sandwiches. We've already done the club sandwich, Mm -hmm. which is one of my favorites. Uh, But I also really, really, really love this sandwich too. And it is, of course, banh mi. So we are going to talk today a little bit about the history of Vietnamese food and in particular banh mi and how banh mi came about to be a tasty little morsel of existence. Yeah, because Southeast Asia is not known for its bread and sandwiches, I suppose. So. No, certainly not. So banh mi, definitely one of the best choices. What is a banh mi sandwich for those who are listening who are just like, sounds interesting, don't know what that is, haven't had one before. Okay, so... In Vietnamese, okay, so this, this can get a little confusing. In Vietnamese, the term ban, as in ban, B-A-N-H, ban, translates loosely as cake or bread. And this refers to a wide variety of prepared foods. So it can be sweet or savory. It can be cakes, buns, pastries, sandwiches, other food items, which are cooked by steaming, baking, frying, deep frying, or boiling. They also have just general foods that are made from wheat flour that are called barn. And that can be certain varieties of noodles, fish cakes, different things. It's oh, it's an everything word. It, it, so, for a really, really long doughy. time, it was. So, the actual term banh mi, taking it as like just a meaning, it just means bread of sorts. It dates back to Vietnamese culture as early as the 1830s. And it's first mentioned in Jean-Louis Tabard's Dictionary. Of the Dictionarium Latino Animicicum. Yes. So it was mentioned in that as just being known as bread. So that's when the first reference of banh mi just being bread. Initially in North Vietnamese, it was called French style baguette, which is banh thai, literally meaning like West Barn, West Bread, Western Bread. In the South, that's where you get banh mi from, wheat bread. So that's where it's sort of caught on from the, the Southern name of it. The banh mi that we know today is, of course, your bread roll, similar to a French baguette, uh, with a fusion of meats and vegetables uh, from native Vietnamese cuisine, such as cha lua, which is pork sausage, coriander leaf, cucumber, pickled carrots, pickled radish, and combined with condiments, uh, which do have some French influence, such as pate, along with chili and mayonnaise as well. And it normally has cilantro on it as well, right? Coriander. 
Yes, I said coriander. Oh, you didn't say that? I missed that. It's because I said coriander and not cilantro. Uh, Maybe yeah. that threw you off. Getting confused now. So, yeah, as we, as I just said, bun mi literally just means bread. So, the combination that we know today as the sandwich is actually called something like bun mi tit nugui, or like which means nui bread or something. N-G-O-U-I. N-G is like a- Nui. 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 Bun mi tit nui. T-H-I-T. Oh, we, should, we should look up how to pronounce things before we do episodes. <laughs> this is a common problem. Uh, that actually means bread, meat, and cold cuts. Or then you have bun mi duck beet, which means the special, which is pretty much one with a, like, it's like with everything. Mm. I'll take the lot. So Always. that's actually the full name, but everybody just shortens it to bun mi. And that's what we know it as today. But you actually should be asking for bread with meat and vegetables. That makes more sense, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Did you know that in Vietnam, these sandwiches are typically eaten for breakfast? Uh, I think I did sort of know that, actually. Yeah. They're yeah. considered too dry for lunch or dinner, so you've really got to make sure you get up early and have them nice and fresh. Uh, don't go looking for it for an afternoon snack, because it's probably good. If someone's selling it as an afternoon snack, it's probably going to be rubbish. Pork's probably already been sitting in the sun for oh, hours. Oh, yeah. yeah. And Vietnamese the bread's going to be dry and dry a little too crusty. Yeah. All right. Breakfast makes sense. Yeah. So, that is what actual bun mi is. So, maybe now we'll just talk a little bit about the history of Vietnamese food in general. So, the known history of Vietnam began around 12,000 BC when the indigenous people of Vietnam settled in the Hong River Valley. And there they found it was a really great place to sustain life where they could go hunting. And make sandwiches. I'm assuming that was, uh, yeah. no, they do us like, yeah, this is a sandwich spot. They went hunting, they harvested plants, they made sandwiches, the end. There was already a subway there? There was, <laughs> yeah, yeah the, okay. it had already been, yeah. Good. So anyway, those people hung out there for a bit and they just had a pretty happy life, just hunting and harvesting whatever plants were already there. Uh, 6,000 years later, we can see evidence of agricultural advances, so they were learning, and uh, the people of the region began wet rice farming. Also doesn't sound like a sandwich, but sure. Yep. Uh, we're not, I'm just talking about the history of food in Vietnam. So, right. so this rice, as well as uh, the different herbs, plants, fish, and meat that was already readily available, uh, was the early base of the Vietnamese diet and actually something that is quite standard even to today. In the 2nd century BC, the entirety of what was then known as Nam Viet, uh, which is Vietnam, I don't know why they switched that. Anyway, I should have looked into that history. Yeah. Uh, so, it was actually acquired by the Chinese and thus considered to be a Chinese province. So, they had control for about a thousand years of the Vietnamese people and they lived under the reign of the Chinese dynasties. Over that time- Some would say they have control of quite a lot of people right now too. Indeed. <laughs> Indirectly yes. or directly, who knows? Yeah. But uh, so, their Chinese influence is pretty strong, especially in the northern regions because it's like- Closer to China, it's like yeah, what? it borders China, it right? It does, yeah. yeah. So of course, those influences were then added to the cuisine. So introduction of things like noodles. Oh yes. Um, so and of course, the Vietnamese that we know today has put their own twist on them. So these different things were introduced into the cuisine, and they put their own twist and you know become what we know and love them to be today. Uh, of course, there were some other well-known occupiers of the region, but we're going to get to that in a little bit. Uh, I just want to talk a little bit more about traditional Vietnamese cooking because I was really interested to find out the fact that Vietnamese cuisine is actually goes on the principles of yin and yang. Uh. 
And but that came from China, I assume. Yeah, yeah. So this is one of the influences of China. But I don't know. I just think it's interesting that when you're eating your food, especially because I've eaten Vietnamese a ton of times, and I don't necessarily, I just think, oh, this is yum. And I don't necessarily <laughs> think about the way that they've prepared it, but it's actually prepared in a really special way. You know, particular sort of way. You don't have a philosophical discussion in your brain whilst eating every bite going like, hmm, that's a bit more yinny. That's I, a bit more yangy. I do not, but no? I think it mm. could be interesting for people to try and think of it. Sure. So, um, so the way that the yin and yang works is, is for the cuisine to provide balance that is beneficial to your body. Uh, so they have their contrasting textures and flavors, which are really important to the food. But the real focus is on the heating and cooling properties mm. of the ingredients. Yes, I've heard this before in other cultures. So, yeah. yeah. So there's certain dishes that, you know, that will provide this contrast in temperature. So you've got, for example, a popular thing would be like duck meat, which is actually considered cooling. Mm. Uh, and it's served in the hot summer with ginger fish sauce, which is considered warm. But actually, interesting when you flip like flipped on that, chicken is actually considered warm, <laughs> and pork is con- is considered hot. So it's this, but duck is cool. I don't know. Maybe it's because it lives in water. Perhaps because yeah, seafoods are considered cool yep. to cold, uh, and they use them quite frequently with ginger, which is warm. There you go. It lives in water thing. Keeps cool during the summer. Yep. And then when you get your spicy foods, which are, of course, hot, uh, they mix, they balance that with sourness, which is considered cooling, which is how you get your your spicy and sour. So, anyway, I just wanted to mention it because I thought it was just interesting with eating. And you do actually, when we get to banh mi, you do get those those mixture of flavors. On the flip side, I mean, spicy and sour is just really tasty, regardless of how yin-yanged I've been by it. So, exactly. it's good, tasty stuff. Well, that's what I said before. I've always just been like, oh, this is tasty. Yep. Sour, spicy. It's pretty good. Yes. So, anyway, back into it. As I mentioned before, Vietnam was a former colony of China uh, for many, many years. And during the time, the Vietnamese people adopted things like noodles, chopsticks, the wok. But they also adopted Confucianism and Buddhism. And they talk on that. I mean, it's not exactly religions. What would you call them? Just ideologies? Ways of life. I mean, they are like they are considered. Confucianism is considered an Eastern religion. And yeah, Buddhism. Obviously, everyone knows Buddhism is. They are still considered religions. It's just I think they're a non. They're non monotheistic, so they don't have a single deity. I think Confucianism maybe that's not. Yeah, I mean, obviously, Buddhism is not theistic at all. There is no god. Yeah, and I think Confucianism is just based around the teachings of Confucius. So it's not. It's just some I think dude. there's no God. So both Buddha and yeah. Confucius were just two dudes. Whereas that- I think the other Chinese one, oh, this is stretching my brain back years. I think Taoism, the other Chinese one, uh, that's like a more like a pagan religion with lots and lots of gods and everything's a god. And- I think Taoism is more, yeah, very paganism where you're worshipping like the trees and the sun and the yeah. and um, everything, like the water. Uh, yeah, and, yeah, I think Confucianism and Buddhism sort of sit in the same box of being non-theistic but ways of life type religions. Yes. It's still classes religions. Anyway, their decision to uh, take on these religions was where they will actually find themselves in a little bit of trouble later on. Oh. So, we're going to fast forward- When choosing forward. sandwich toppings. Oh, my God. I'm just- I, I'm assuming that there's, there's going to be a twist. We're, it's all related to sandwiches. We're getting to the sandwiches. <laughs> Goodness. Okay. So, fast forward to uh, a few centuries, to the 17th century, in fact- and uh, this is where we have evidence of French missionaries turning up in Vietnam to try and convert the locals to Christianity. 
Sure. This practice was very much not appreciated by the emperor and local authorities in power. Uh, they grew very wary of foreign influence in the country and did not like it very much. Well, I don't think anyone really liked it that much, did they? No, I can't say there- anyone who was colonized appreciated the foreign. In you know, very few. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but this did actually escalate, and it hit breaking point when Emperor to Dirk, Emperor to Dirk, maybe. Maybe. Uh, Executed two Spanish missionaries in 1857. At this time, the French happened to have a military fleet nearby fighting China in the Second Opium War, and they thought that that would be a perfect time to set an example for people who were not happy about the spread of Christianity. Wasn't even French missionaries. Oh, it's because they were just Christians in general. Yeah, they were were just helping out their fellow Christians. And the French were there or close by. So at first, the French sent threats as they wanted to force the emperor to, you know, allow Catholics to practice their faith and, you know, missionaries to, you know, convert and do what they do. So, like, we'll take away all your sandwiches if you keep killing people. There's no sandwiches. Uh, there's no sandwiches. I just become a little sandwich obsessed so far. But the emperor actually said, no, no, I will not allow Neat. it. Neat. And so he refused to accept the French demands and the French then attacked and held parts of Saigon. But still, the emperor was like, I will not be beaten! And uh, They do that, actually. Emperors are quite well known for the whole, I, yep. I'm sort of a bit in charge of everything and don't want to be beaten. Exactly. They love that. So, at that point in time, the French had only sent like a couple of people over to attack, and they took over a couple of areas. But because the emperor refused to give in, when the French military finished with China in 1860, they were like, all right, we're done with this war. Now we've got extra forces. Got all our opium. We've got all the opium. We're <laughs> we high as kites. <laughs> Let's go have some fun, boys. And so they went and attacked Vietnam in Touraine, which is present day Da Nang. Uh, yeah, central, central coast. Mm-hmm. And over the course of the next two years, they took over all of Saigon and the surrounding area. By 1862, the French had taken quite a bit of control of the region and were fairly pissy, apparently, about the whole thing, as they felt that they were owed to be paid back for their costly war. Even though they started it. Well, I guess they don't see that they started it, but they were like, you went and killed some Christians, and then we had to come in and take over, and we didn't have the money for this, so you can pay us back. And they demanded free use of trading ports throughout the country, and this was the birth of the French colony of Cochin, China. Yes. Introduction of the French. We're getting closer. You can smell the bread wafting from the ships. We are probably all aware that even today the French are known to be a little bit snobbish when it comes to their cuisine. And it was certainly the case back then as uh, they tried to find efficient ways to have a French diet while stationed in this new Asian country. Good luck with that. Yes, exactly. So, it really wasn't feasible to send large amounts of food all the way from France. So, the new authorities introduced crops and livestock to Vietnam in order to keep up with their European tastes. This was things like coffee, milk, and deli meats, things like that. Wheat, they did try to grow there, but it just would not grow. Well, it's super humid and hot. I'm not surprised. It it was like, nut, not having any of it. So, the wheat had to be shipped in, and because of that, only the French could afford it. They used this inequality as well to reinforce their European superiority. So, there was actually apparently a saying at the time that said, bread and meat make us strong, rice and fish keep them weak. Wow. Yeah. So, yeah, the locals just were not worthy of bread. 
And at this time, the divide was so strongly enforced that there was like incredible disapproval for any French who ate Vietnamese food and any Vietnamese who ate French food. They were just having none of it from both sides. They were just like- Not a happy colony. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. Not sure that any of them were really super happy ever, but yeah, that's uh, particularly bad. Yeah. Yeah, so uh, this actual divide of the French eating expensive imported European food and locals continuing to eat their own traditional but affordable food went on for many, many years and actually stayed this way all up until World War One. So that's quite a lot of years of just keeping that divide. World War One kicked off and things definitely started to change, of course, in the world in total, but uh, in Vietnam as well. So when World War One started... Thousands of French officials and soldiers that were stationed in Indochina then were sent home to France to assist in the war effort. The Vietnamese market, because because they all just up and left and took off, the Vietnamese market was then suddenly flooded with this excess of European products because no one was consuming them. And so they were like, oh, well, open the warehouses and they could sell it to the general public at discounted prices because they had to get rid of it. Mm. So, suddenly the Vietnamese local found that they were able to afford the produce previously only uh, in a price range of the wealthy French. So, they got their hands on things like European beer, cheeses, meats, and of course, bread, uh, along with the now famous tinned condensed milk. That's that's where they first were introduced to the condensed milk, which is now a staple in Vietnam's famous coffees. And Southeast Asia in general, condensed milk everywhere. Well, Burma had it as well. And also, this is where they were introduced to Maggi sauce or Maggi, depending on how you would like to pronounce it. Where did that come from then? I knew you would like this. I had no idea. I assumed it was an Asian sauce in the first place. That is what I thought too. And it was only through doing this uh, research for this particular article. I don't know how it hasn't come up before, but it is a Swiss invention by a man called Julius Maggie. What? Uh Uh-huh. I always thought it was Asian too. Absolutely crazy. It was invented in 1884 in Switzerland as a way to improve the nutritional intake of worker families. And it's like salty soy sauce type taste though right but it's not made with soy no it's made with legumes and and stuff Uh, like that so it was a way to introduce more legumes i just assumed it was like soy from the flavor yeah yeah it's it's he's got a few different products and actually you will find today that there uh is nine different formulas for the sauce so if you have been to a different country or region and it's tasted a little bit different it's because it is like worldwide famous but in different regions it does have a little bit of a different formula i guess it was just to like adhere to meet local tastes yeah yeah. to meet local tastes and stuff like that ingredients were available cheaper exactly Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting. The company was actually bought by Nestle in 1947, Mm. but uh, I just thought that was a really interesting little side fact because I totally thought it was Asian. That is a surprise side fact. No idea about Switzerland. All right, so you've been going on about it. When do we see the invention of the famous bun me sandwich? They now have bread. They've got access to the bread. Um, And we're in World War One. But the sandwich doesn't actually appear until the 1950s. So we've still got a little bit of time before we actually have the appearance of the bun me. Where did the actual making of the bun me sandwich begin? Yeah, because by the sounds of it, they've got some bread. Mm-hmm. And then suddenly we've got bun me. So there must have been a little bit of a 
transition from just we've got bread now. Yeah, which is crazy because they initially got the bread in World War One, but there isn't any stories of bun mi until at least the 1950s. Well, also, surely, although they originally got that bread, by the sounds of it, it was like we have a surplus of stock now that all the French people have left. And that surplus is going to be gone pretty soon because then France must have stopped sending them bread. That is true. Well, That's where... Bre- they were sending them wheat, not bread anyway, right? I mean, they didn't have refrigeration on ships yeah, in no, that time. Yeah, no, wheat so was brought in. Uh, that was wheat. actually taken up by the American troops who were selling it to them at, like, cheaper prices. So, yeah, the start of the war, I guess because they were trying to fight against China. I can't remember with World War One if China was really involved. No, because they started the... Mm, I can't remember. I don't know. I didn't know. I don't remember China being particularly involved in World War One. No. Well, anyway, the Americans took up the the slack from that, and they started being able to import cheaper, more affordable flour from the Americans at that point when the French was cut off. So they still were able to have the bread, but in those days, they were more likely to have it the way that the French had it. So just like opium, they got hooked on bread in that short period of time. Duh. I need bread. I need bread now. It's bread. I can't live without bread. It's bread. Bread is good. It is good. Bread has a, bear I say it, bread is better than noodles. Definitely. And I love me some noodles. Yeah. Oh, I love noodles, but bread's better than noodles. Love bread. If someone said, you can have noodles the rest of your life or bread, obviously I'm going to have bread. Yeah. Obviously. So yeah, they got hooked in that short amount of time and people suggest that they probably were just having it the way that they saw the French people had it. So that was with uh, the bread, and then on the side you would have the cold cuts and pate and stuff like that. And you would, mm. I guess, either break off a bit of bread and put the meats on it that you want in the pate, or you would make your own. Like it would be separate. It wouldn't be like a whole full sandwich. All right, as sorts. So the bun me as a sandwich, a full combined thing, does have two stories. One seems more likely than the other. But they're still very vague, exceptionally vague in this. Really vague. So the first story I found was the banh mi sandwich was born in Saigon in the late 1950s. And this was when Vietnam split into two separate countries. Uh, That happened in 1954. Approximately one million northerners fled south um, in order to escape. That definitely was uh, communism coming in then. Yeah, pre-Vietnam. War, American Vietnam War. Vietnam War drama, This is where it all started happening. Exactly. So about one million northerners fled south, and among them were a couple called Mr. and Mrs. Lee, and they settled in Saigon, and they started a sandwich shop named after the village that they grew up in outside of Hanoi. Which was called Banh Mi, Bread Village. No, no, no. no. It was the name of the village, but I tell you, it was really hard to pronounce, and I was like, I've already obliterated too many different Vietnamese words today. Yeah. Yeah. Easy one. But I will, I can put a link in the show notes because this place actually still exists. So you can go to the restaurant and go try nice. their bun mi. But apparently their goal was to create a takeaway food with fresh ingredients that was sold at a more affordable price. So what they're credited with doing is actually putting the things into the sandwich. As I said, the yeah. French generally had them side by side. They put them in and it was just easier for people to take away and on, you know, when they were on their way to work or- Sandwich on the go. Sandwich on the go at, a, at an affordable price. Yeah. As I said, the, the place is still open. You can go and visit it in Saigon and apparently their granddaughter is running it and she's still up front serving customers like- Wow. Possibly even today. So, um, that is- 
the most popular story. People like it. It's it's as vague as that. I couldn't find any other information. But people are just like, yeah, it was them. And then lots of people started opening up, getting their own little stalls and doing their own little thing. And then it got really popular all throughout Saigon. Another story was about a guy called Lee Vo. And he's famous because he opened Bali Bakery, which some people might know of because it's uh, it exists in, the, in California and San Jose today. Um, but his story goes that he was in his early 20s when he began his own business selling smoothies and various drinks from a stand that he built out of wood that he found. And uh, his beverages sold very well, but he needed an item to go with it to complement his drinks. Oh, yes. Uh, sandwiches seemed ideal because they were quick and easy to make and easy to take on the go and customizable so people could have, what you know, like Subway today, you can choose what you want on it. He began it was ex- Subway, I knew it. <laughs> he began experimenting with different flavors and techniques for the vegetables and the meat that would go in the sandwiches. And, of course, he looked to the French uh, to, uh, for culinary inspiration with the breads and pâtés and all of that sort of stuff. Apparently, originally in the beginning, the French would have used uh, butter, but then that got switched out to mayonnaise because mayonnaise lasted better in the- Oh, yeah. Butter in really hot temperatures is going to go rancid quite quickly. Yeah. Right? So, that's how we ended up with mayonnaise instead of butter on- on yeah, the sandwiches. Makes sense. Yes. So, apparently, he came up with a union of pickled vegetables, savory meats, uh, all served on a French baguette. Um, and he was incredibly popular in Saigon, but eventually, eventually had to close up and move due to the war, and he escaped Vietnam in 1972. And then the story continues because he opened up a bakery in 1982 in San Jose, California, and it became very popular with a lot of the locals around that region. And also a lot of the Vietnamese people that had moved to that area as well were like, yay, this is our food. And they continued to eat it and it became very popular in the United States. Mm. That's his story. Also, that bakery is still there today as well. So, you can drop in. Um, apparently, there's a few bakeries throughout the United States. So, you can go to Bartley Bakery uh, and go and try their version of Bun Mi. No one seemed on the internet seemed to really like his story much. I'm sure he made sandwiches. I'm sure he did a thing, but no one seems to think that he was actually really the first person to do it. Most people tend to like- He just noticed it was happening and went, this is a great thing. Most likely. Then, oh, well, I moved to the US and so I can- He probably saw that people were making sandwiches and he's like, how can I do it better? And he might have done it better. Yeah. Yeah. Well, that that works. I mean, sometimes it's like you weren't the first, but you were the best. Yeah. So, they're the two main ones. So, yeah, you can definitely go to Saigon and you can- Try the original sandwiches by Mr. and Mrs. Lee. And or, I don't think this dude has a bakery in Vietnam anymore, but you can try it if you are in the United States and try his form of bun me. And then I guess you can just decide which one you like best. And then from that, decide which story you like best. Mm. I don't know. I like all of them, really. But sure, if there's a best one, I'll have that. Yeah, exactly. Can I order that one? So either way, one of them or both of them opened up a stall that was selling sandwiches. A lot of people around saw it and went, that's a great idea, love it. And these little carts started popping up all over Saigon. And then, you know, they started spreading out to even further outside of Saigon. Sadly, as I mentioned before, the Vietnam War kicked off and that halted a lot of things. After the fall of Saigon in 1975, millions of people fled and they went to different places like San Diego, Houston, Seattle, uh, even Paris. So, I guess some people would have had some family that have yeah, maybe, or- immigrated to yeah. France. And because a lot of the reasons why people went to these particular places was that there was already an established Vietnamese community. Yeah. 
So they went there as refugees. They took very little with them, but they did bring their skills and they did bring this new dish that had been popularized in Saigon at the time called banh mi. They turned up, opened up some small restaurants to serve their other Vietnamese and lo- you know, other people from the area. Everyone went, I like it. It's really good. Some of them made a few little adjustments to incorporate local ingredients, of course, because you've yeah. got to use the local project, uh, produce. But, but yeah, this is how banh mi and in general Vietnamese food grew in popularity and um, has really become the worldwide sensation that it is today. Interesting. Yeah, it's, it's, very, uh, it's very tasty stuff. I'm a big fan. And it's surprising that it's sort of like it was definitely not a French dish. No, nope. It was more just a because they brought certain ingredients and then the Vietnamese created a very Vietnamese dish out of some French ingredients. But I can't remember what you... I mean, I know obviously a lot of French people had to go back to Europe for the First World War, but then they were... Vietnamese, uh, Vietnam was still a French colony until after the Second World War. Yes. So it was like 1948 or something. Or, so then this dish seemed to appear just after the French left. Yeah, because as I said, the French were still very much like, this is our food and that is your yeah, food. Yeah. So, to combine Vietnamese traditional food of the pickled vegetables and the local meat and put it with their bread just would have been really frowned upon. Yeah, but as soon as they were like, okay, you've got your country back. And then like <laughs> like 10 years later, like, it's a complete mess and now we're having another war. Why, why did we do this? Yeah, it didn't. it wasn't a very good exit. France did Name not a country make- that did a good exit from colonialism. Mm, yes, there were lots of very bad exits. Yeah. That one went very badly. But it did mean that we got bun mi. They could have been eating bun mi for so much longer, you crazy French people. <laughs> but they just were not interested in anything to do with the Vietnamese cuisine. Yep. No. Fair enough. But yes, of course, if you do happen to visit the amazing country of Vietnam, this dish has to be 100% on your list of foods to try. I think it was one of the first things I tried as soon as I landed in Vietnam. It was like I had, yeah, it was. It was the first thing I had was banh mi. It's what I looked for. I didn't even have pho. I had banh mi and it was good. Mm. Um, And yes, I'll finish with a quote from the late, great Anthony Bourdain. He said, you don't have to go looking for great food in Vietnam. Great food finds you. It's everywhere. In restaurants, cafes, little storefronts, in the streets, carried in makeshift portable kitchens on yokes borne by women vendors. Your cyclo driver will invite you to his home. Your guide will want to bring you to his favorite place. Strangers will rush up to you and offer you a taste of something they're proud of and think you should know about it. It's a country filled with proud cooks and passionate eaters. And I have to say, as I was just mentioning with my first trip to Vietnam, my cyclo driver did take me to his favorite place. Yeah. Yeah. That was after I had had my initial banh mi. He took me to this place where I had like meat surprise pho. <laughs> yeah. it, well, was, it was meat surprise. The, yeah. That's normally the best type. Yeah. It was good. I enjoyed it. And it, yeah. And he showed me all these like postcards that people had sent him from around the world. He actually, yeah, he took me to his favorite place and then came in and sat with me and ordered with me. It was a very, very cool experience. And um, Vietnam was the very first country I ever visited in my entire life. So, it's, it's very special to me, actually. Yeah. And, I mean, I hope those experiences are still happening because, like, the world of tourism changes so fast. And I don't know if that welcoming attitude that you and Anthony Bourdain would have had uh, I feel many years back. I have heard stories that it has changed 
not necessarily for the best. Over tourism has definitely sort of kicked in in some places, especially like Scam Central um, is what I hear about it normally. But yeah, sadly that that can be the case. But I think there are still lots of places that are less touristic that you can definitely visit that you will get that authentic Vietnamese experience. All big capital cities uh, have those hustlers. I you know you go to. Yeah. You go to Paris and you're going to have some people hustling you. you. Of course. You know, so it's it's just what you get with those big cities. But, but it's sort of important to remember if we're, if we're saying, if your taxi driver says, I'll take you to my favorite place and get you food, you've got to remember when you get to that place, you have to ask them what the price of the dish is because there is a classic scam where they take you there, you eat something that seems cheap and then they charge you like $500 for like one plate of food. Yes. And because you didn't ask... You have to pay because that's the price. I mean, you can call the police and sometimes that works, but sometimes the police are just friends with the restaurant and they're like, well, you didn't ask the price and they can charge what they want for whatever they want. It's a bit sucks to be you. Yeah. Yeah. So definitely those sorts of experiences where you do meet locals and get out and do that stuff is amazing, but be wary. Use your intuition. Use your intuition and always ask what the price is. If someone's like just saying like, no, just have this. You don't have to pay for anything or, you know, we'll just serve you this. Just be like, what is this price? Because once they tell you the price, generally then either they get angry and kick you out because they wanted to scam you or they're like, well, now I have to give it to you for that price. Yeah. And to be honest, my experience that I was talking about happened in 2005. So countries do change a lot in that time. But uh, yeah, I'm, I'm. I'm rooting for Vietnam because it is a beautiful country with lovely people and I'm hoping that they can turn around the uh, the opinion that they that they have with that it's a tourist scam place to visit. I it's a bit sad that that has become a little bit of their reputation because it's a really great place with amazing food. Yeah. Go eat some banh mi and lots of other things. Eat everything. When you're in Vietnam, eat everything. Okay, that's it for this episode. Thanks again for joining us. Hope you learned about some tasty, pretty, meaty things. The banh mi is pretty yummy. We'll be back with another episode at some point. Before then, of course, rate and review if you haven't left us a nice five-star review yet. Five stars is the right one. And tell your friends about the show and all the usual stuff. Yep. And if you've had some tasty banh mi anywhere around the world, let us know. So tweet us at Food Fun Travel, and we would like to know where your favorite banh mi store is in the world because I'm literally drooling right now with the thought of eating a nice crunchy bun me. Oh, I do like it. In fact, I might need to make it. Oh, yes, please. Because we've got lots of got lots of crispy, fatty pork here in Georgia. I can easily go and get some good pork. And, All right. Let's go do that. Yeah. Find right some good bread. <laughs> right now. Yeah. <laughs> we can do it with local Georgian bread. Georgian bread bun me. Yeah. Okay. Okay. We got to go. Bye. Thanks for listening to The Dish. Don't forget to subscribe and keep this podcast on the air by giving us a five-star review on your preferred podcast app or channel. Also, come join our foodie community on Facebook in the Food Worth Travelling For Facebook group. Catch you next time.